And welcome everyone to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Of course, you can follow all my thoughts pretty much as they happen throughout the week on Twitter. At JakeJakeNY is my handle on Twitter. At JakeJakeNY. And I'm also on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. You can find me there. Um, this week I want to get to two th- things that are, and, and get a deeper analysis on two things. One that's been in the news a lot and been talked about a lot. The second that has been in the news but not talked a lot uh, enough about, in my opinion. And I, I think it really needs to be explained and, and gotten into. And, and lastly, I want to get into a clarification about something I, I talked about last week. Because there was actually a listener, a real listener, who um, did something that I think is extremely rare nowadays. They offered a very respectful critique of something that I had to say. You know, so often when people on the air, in the news, get criticized, it's just nasty, nasty, nasty all the time. And and, uh, this time it was just someone who respectfully and and thoughtfully made out an argument. Um, So I want to respond to that person, not only... Uh, back to the email that was sent to me, but I, and I did that immediately, but I want to do that on the air as well, without giving away any names or anything like that. The first thing I want to get into is, is an issue that is, of course, been very, very dominant in the news. I've talked about it quite uh, often uh, and many times previously here on Novak Now, and I want to get into it again because it again is flaring up because of a new policy that was announced. And, of course, that's the issue of immigration immigration into the United States. And it's back in the news this week because President Trump announced uh, in the middle of the week uh, that he would like to switch the policy of the United States, and more than just he would like to, they actually laid it out, the policy he would like to change on immigration in the United States and to give preference and to have preference for more skilled uh, immigrants, uh, immigrants that already speak English, immigrants that are younger. Uh, these are people that he would like to bring into the economy who already have skills and he feels would be a boost to the American economy, a boost to the American culture, uh, and not a drag, an, an economic drag. Uh, as we know, more than 50% of all immigrants, whether they are legal or illegal, uh, are on some form of public assistance. So President Trump wants to cut down on that, and he wants to bring in people who might contribute more to the economy right away. And this is an argument that people have had in the past, and this is something that he's talked about in the past, but now, of course, the policy was released. And there was a lot of response to it. Uh, first, there was this gleeful, sta- gleeful statement that was going on mostly in the news media talking about how, well, President Trump won't have the votes in Congress to change this policy, so it's kind of dead on arrival, ha, ha, ha. Uh, which is sad, because this is a discussion that we should be having as a country. You know, when the left talks about things like, the left has a, has a cliche that they use on certain issues, whether it's racism, or it's usually about racism or guns. They say it's time for America to have, we need to have a conversation about racism and guns. And when they say that, they really mean we need to have a lecture. When they say we, we need to have a conversation, Eric Holder was one of the people who said that about racism, and they're always saying this about gun, gun laws. That means they want everyone in America to sit down and be quiet while the left lectures them about what we should think. They don't really want a conversation. If they wanted a conversation, they'd, they've had plenty of opportunities to do so. If someone who is really pro-gun control wants to have a conversation with the people who don't think, think that, they can go on the NRA channels. The NRA has some kind of a, you know, a website channel that, that, that's watched quite often, and I have no doubt that they would not be treated horrifically if a gun control advocate just came on there and said, hey, I'd like to go through the pros and cons of a debate with you, and, and, I, and I'll do it if you're 
if you're orderly and no one yells at me and we, and we don't have to do it in front of a crowd so that people don't start yelling and things like that, maybe we can just do it one-on-one in a studio. I, I, I don't think the NRA would, would balk at that opportunity at all. Um, but they, that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for a lecture. And they, looked at, they want to lecture us when they use that term, a conversation. Conversation means you shut up and we'll tell you what, what you should think. Because it's too bad because we, I would like to have a real conversation, not a lecture, about our immigration policy. First of all, no one can deny our immigration policy is not orderly. We, d- we have a disorderly immigration policy, if any policy at all. It's really just extremely haphazard. We have official rules. But we also have a reality of people who are waiting for a very long time, people who are jumping the border who are not waiting, and it's just really a balagan. There's really only a Yiddish word for it, uh, <laughs> or a Hebrew word for it. It's, there's really no English word, I think. It's just, it's a, it's a cacophony, cacophony. It's just that there's a lot of issues going on with our immigration. We need a comprehensive policy that makes some sense. And, of course, the, a lot of the people who are calling for a comprehensive policy, again, are also, I think, being disingenuous. I think they really just want no policy. But we really do need a policy, and I think we need a policy that, that, I, that is very close to what President Trump announced. I, I do think that we need a, a policy that, that favors skilled people, people who already speak English, people who want to come, who will not go on public assistance, people who will not cut into our working class salaries and the demand for their, for their work. And I know that in the tech community, there's been complaints about people coming in at the higher end who are taking engineering jobs and doing them for, for less uh, money and, and lower salaries. So I know that that isn't completely perfect either. So, again, I, this is what I mean by having a real conversation. How are we going to bring in more immigrants who are skilled? And that might help our problem with the challenge that a lot of immigrants create to the wages and to the job positions of people at the lower end of the economic scale. But necessarily, it, should we necessarily be threatening people at the higher end of the economic scale? You know, that isn't fair either. So we have to figure out how we're going to do this. And right now, there's just, it's just haphazard. It's just a haphazard economic, a, a immigration policy that doesn't seem to fit, serve anybody's purposes other than chaos. And I guess there are some people who want that kind of chaos, especially people who want voter chaos, especially people who don't want any kind of continuity uh, of law. And uh, there, there are people who like that, too. So it's just one of those things where we really need to figure this out. Now, what I want to talk about on this is how you can respond when you hear the tropes, when you hear the usual things that people are saying about immigration in this country that I think are imposters. <laughs> they are stand-ins for actual policy discussions. You know, if we're going to have this conversation, then let's have the conversation, Let's let it be substantive, and let's let it be fact-based. So I wanted to go over just a few of the things that you hear, a few of the tropes that you hear about immigration here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, and how one can respond, even if you are inclined to want a more open immigration policy, even if you're inclined towards more open borders. I get it. I know some people feel that way because they feel that it's really everyone should have a right to come in here, and if they eventually commit a crime, then fine, they commit a crime. But that's true of the people who are born here, too. Why should we be extra scrutinizing of of folks coming in before we know if they're criminals or not? I get it. But even if you are one of those people, we have to have a substantive debate, debate about, and, and we have to have substantive answers to some of the tropes that we hear. 
So I think the most common trope that we hear when people talk about having some kind of more restrictive policy, whether it's building a wall, whether it's asking for merit-based immigration, whether it's demanding that we deport more illegal immigrants, you'll hear this conversation, you'll hear this little trope all the time, which is some variation of, well, you know, it says at the bottom of the, ba- of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to, to stretch free, the whole thing. And they say, boy, that's contrary to that idea. If we close our borders a little bit more or if we ask for more merit-based immigration. And they say that as if they've got us on something. Like, oh, like, we got you there. Okay, well, they don't got us. Emma Lazarus's poem about give me your tired, your poor, that is just it. It was a poem. It is a poem. It is not a policy. It was never the official policy of this country. It was never written into the Federal Register. It's just a poem. A very lovely poem. Emma Lazarus is a Jewish, was a Jewish woman at the time when there was very tremendous when there was a tremendous amount of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe and Russia. It's a lovely poem and it's a lovely sentiment, but it's not a policy and it never was our policy. So it's quite it's quite outrageous to kind of present that as if that's something that's in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. It's not. And we do want to help people who are looking to improve themselves and do better in life coming into the United States. But that can lead to a policy. And we can say to ourselves, well, here's what we're hoping to do, one of the things that we're hoping to do, and how can we make this into a policy that makes sense? If we're looking for people, if we're looking to admit people who want to improve their lives by coming to the United States, then we can say to ourselves, well, who are the people who can demonstrate that, that desire for us here? Do they want to come here to go on welfare, or do they want to come here to get ahead in life? And there are ways to do that that, inclu- that that I think are included in this new Trump immigration plan, but even if they're not, there are things that can be included in future laws. Yes, we can have an earlier civics test. Right now you take the civics test, I think, at the end of your immigration process. We can have earlier programs that really emphasize English literacy. Yes, I know there are a lot of people who speak different languages in this country, but really, if you don't speak English fluently or, or extremely well, you're not going to get as far as you could in this country. And we should encourage that much more than we already do. We should ask, what do you plan to do once you get here? Then I mean do, not just go on to a you know, Do you have some kind of plan for yourself vocationally? These are, some, these are things that are absolutely we can ask without even going against the spirit of the Emma Lazarus poem. But again, again, it was just a spirit. It was just a poem. It's not a policy. It's important to remember that. Another argument people make is, well, if we build a wall or if we go into a merit-based immigration, that all these great refugees who came to this country from Albert Einstein on down, and they meant, they'll name a lot of people, not a lot of famous people, would never have gotten here. Again, that's just a trope. It's not a real thing. To, it's not a real argument. There's no reason why we still can't admit a certain number of refugees in this country or a certain number of people who don't ha- necessarily have skills but are in a dire situation. Australia does that. Australia has a, merit, a mostly merit-based immigration system that runs about 65% merit-based and about 35% more refugee help the helpless type policy. And they're doing very well with it. It's working very well for them. There's no reason why we can't do that in the United States. There's none other than people will vote against it because of other reasons, mostly base political selfish reasons. 
So that's not the way, way it works. We don't have to have one or the other to the exclusion of the other. We can have a mostly merit-based economic and economic-sensitive uh, immigration policy, and we don't have to throw into the garbage the idea that, uh, that we have to have some refugees in this country as well. One of the problems we're seeing in the world is, and this is something that the United States bears all the time, it's kind of like, imagine you're at a shoal fundraising function, and the person who always donates the most money continues to donate the most money, and instead of focusing on all the other members of the shoal to try to give a little bit of money, more money to the shoal, all everyone does is focus on that big donor and asks him or her why they don't give more. And it's getting old and it's getting tired. The United States has taken in so many more immigrants in the last 55 years or so since we changed the policy in this country to a more chain migration-based, family-based immigration policy. Previously, before 1965, the United States had a nation-based economic policy. In other words, we would focus on the country, countries that we wanted people to come from. And it was usually the United Kingdom, I think Germany was one of those countries, Ireland. And believe it or not, during those many decades, a lot of those spaces that we would open up for immigrants coming from those countries would remain unclaimed. And for the Jewish community, this is a big sore subject because we know that during World War II, not enough Jews could get into this country because quotas were, were lowered at that time. Because of the Great Depression and other issues, they were worried about more immigrants coming into the country. And it's understandable that, that there are people who worry about that happening again. But we don't have to go back to a 1930s, 19, late 1920s policy. The, the, the policy can simply be, hey... We're going to take in a certain number of refugees, and we're also going to reserve the right to open up the doors even wider during national emergencies in other countries, international emergencies. And that's something that I think is reasonable, but it's not reasonable if your goal is to flood the country with as many potential immigrants from countries, from people who you think you can get to illegally vote for your side, or people that you think can get you can get onto public assistance so that the system is totally broken and that a bigger safety net becomes the only thing we talk about in this country, like they do in Europe. You know, in Europe, the biggest issues are, are not really international politics. The biggest issues are, well, how much more of the free stuff that we're responsible for can you get for us? And how can we, how can we do that for everybody? I mean, they, they've become completely beholden to the public's desire for more government entitlements, and that really hamstrings you as a country, and it hamstrings you on the international stage. No wonder, you, you know, Europe, Europe's issues with being morally potent you know, on everything from the Middle East to elsewhere have been hampered by a number of things, not only because of their issues with Israel, which are you know, well-documented and their problems and their moral issues with Israel that they don't seem to understand, but they don't seem to understand Israel, I mean to say. They don't, they don't also have the time. They don't have the bandwidth for it because they're too busy dealing with people from their own country, whether they're immigrants or native-born, who spend most of their political activism focusing on the stuff they want from the government. They're addicted to it, and they can't really move away from that problem. So our immigration policy, these tropes that you hear, whether it's mentioning the Emma Lazarus poem, whether it's talking about how, oh, well, we won't be able to get refugees, it's not true. These are not, these are not again, policy statements. These are emotionally laden memes, emotionally laden comments. They are not policy discussions. And it's, it's, it's just so disappointing. Now, also, they'll say, well, again, we wouldn't get all these great immigrants who'd come into this country if we just, 
if we close the door. We should really just leave the gates wide open because, you know, and they'll, and they'll list all the great immigrants who have come to this country over the last 20 years and say, well, if we had to close those gates to them, if we had built the wall then, we wouldn't have them. The thing about that is that we can play good immigrant, bad immigrant game. If you had had a tighter immigration policy, you could argue, well, we wouldn't have all these people who have murdered people in this country. You wouldn't have this guy in Texas now who has been caught as a serial killer killing about 12 elderly people, and they think there might be more victims. You know, if you want to play the game of if you close the door, you would have not allowed this great immigrant to come in, then I get to play the game of if you had not, if you would close the door, maybe you wouldn't have let this bad immigrant in. I can play this game all day. Everyone can, if you just bother to go and look into the news, even though the news doesn't want to cover these stories about illegal immigrants who commit crimes, or even legal immigrants who commit crimes. It's so clear that they're reluctant to do that. I mean, it doesn't even take a genius to see that these stories get suppressed. Including the one I just mentioned. How many of you heard over the last week that an an illegal immigrant was caught as a serial killer in Texas killing about 12 elderly people, mostly elderly people, and they think there may be more victims out there. Did you hear that story this week? Look it up now. You'll see it. At least somebody covered it. Thank God for the local news, because the local news often covers what the national news tries to suppress, for whatever reason. You didn't hear that story, but like I said, the stuff does eventually get documented somewhere. So we can play the good immigrant, bad immigrant game all, all you want. It's not a policy. It's also not a policy. Saying if we had closed the doors, we wouldn't have gotten this great guy to come into this country. Again, also not a policy. What's the policy? And right now we need one because we really don't have a coherent immigration policy, and it needs to happen. So you can also look on my Twitter feed for this. I had sort of a five-point plan there where I talked about the five tropes that you hear that are very, very common from folks who don't understand or deliberately are, are mischaracterizing the immigration debate. And I had the responses to them. So you can check that out. Another thing that I've talked about on Twitter and I want to talk about now is something that's been talked about a little bit less, uh, even though it's been a major story now for three years running, more than three years now, and that is the faulty results that we continue to see in political polling, not only in America, but in the entire, entire world. And we had yet another example of that this weekend, where the conservative government in Australia won a, a re-election despite the fact that all the polls, including the initial exit poll, showed that they were going to lose. And this comes just a few weeks after the exit polls in Israel were wrong and showed that Netanyahu was going to lose and the Likud was going to lose, even though they ended up getting more votes than any other party. And, of course, the even more famous examples of this, which include the 2016 election of Donald Trump, the 2016 Brexit vote, uh, and I would even go back to the 2015 uh, election of, of, of Netanyahu in the last election in Israel, where he also defied the exit polls and the polls leading into the election. And that is this issue of the consistent undercounting of conservative or more right-wing votes in polls, in national election polls, or international election polls. This continues to happen. I want to tell a little bit of a personal story. So I was at CNBC back in 2016, no longer there. 2016, the morning of the uh, after election night, so the morning after President Trump, uh, Donald Trump became president-elect, and the very and, and you know what they do at CNBC, and they do this at almost every network, but at CNBC it's a very big deal. They'd had this morning news call that used to go on. I want to say around seven thirty-ish. I think that was when the call was. I'm already forgetting. So seven thirty a.m. we had the morning news call, and every once in a while, the president and CEO of CNBC, Mark Hoffman, would get on the call. This would be unusual. Usually, it would be the senior vice president. 
uh, who would, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of the news director of CNBC would, would really conduct the call. But every once in a while, the president and CEO of CNBC, Mark Hoffman, would get on the call. He's still in that position there. And the very, 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 very first thing he said in that call the morning after election day night in November of 2016, I thought was an incredibly intelligent and on-the-mark thing for him to say, especially for a company like CNBC. And he said, you know, we really need to look into the inaccuracy of the polling and the polling business in general. You know, we are a financial network. We're a business network here at CNBC. We need to take a look at these polling companies and why they're getting things wrong, why they got this election wrong, why they got Brexit wrong, why they got the Israel election wrong. He, he mentioned some of these other elections. And figure out whether this as a business is falling apart and why this is faulty. And of course, he made the point, and some, of, some other people made the point during the call, that it's not just about elections. These polling companies, a lot of, them, a lot of what they do is kind of, a, the elections are kind of a loss leader for them, for those of you who know what that term means. They don't necessarily make so much money on their election polling. They do, but not, not as much money. And what they're doing is during the election year, they get their name out there, the companies, whether it's Gallup or Rasmussen or you know, any other of the company, Quinnipiac, the companies or the universities or the organizations that do polling, they get their names out there for free during these camp political campaigns. And then during the middle periods of the, of, of the election cycle, when the elections aren't necessarily going on, they're making their big money doing corporate product testing. Other kind, you know, listen, there's a lot of things to poll other than politics. So they want to show that they can accurately poll people. And so they show that off during elections and then they make their big money off of some private accounts and, and things like that. So he wanted that done. He wanted CNBC to really look into that. Well, spoiler alert, it didn't happen. I don't know if the people were just not wanting to listen to the man or exactly what the motivation was, but they didn't follow up on that. They just didn't. And if they did, I'm sure there'll be one or two people who will say, like, well, they did one report on it. I, I'm, I'm in a real in-depth look, the kind of thing that a network does for months at a time and really, really focuses on. And they didn't do it, and I think there are a number of reasons why. And I talked about this on Twitter, and I want to flesh it out here a little bit more. Here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, I think one of the things that, the first thing that hinders any kind of work in news is that if it's, there's an intellectual laziness in news. You know, there are a lot of people who work extremely hard from a physical standpoint, from a blood, sweat, and tears standpoint in journalism. I don't want to say there's people sitting around all day doing nothing. But from an intellectual standpoint, and by that I mean coming up with new ideas, following into a different narrative that everyone else is talking about, doing something different, 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 is rare. That requires an intellectual um, curiosity and an intellectual stamina that most people in journalism don't have. They follow the herd. There's a herd mentality in almost every business. Journalism is not an exception. And so they weren't really going to go chase that down. So I think that was one problem. The second problem is... If you pay attention to the way that the news media covers elections, and I'm not talking about, like, for example, now, where we're more than a year away from even uh, from, from the general election, we're more, like, more than a year away even from the national conventions in the presidential election. Most of the coverage, quote, coverage of political campaigns in this country is really poll-based. 90% of it is, well, this person's ahead of the polls, that person's behind, polls, 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 polls. And if the news media suddenly starts giving out the message that the polls are unreliable and here's why then how the heck are they going to cover these elections? They might actually have to cover the issues. They might actually have to go out and talk to voters a little bit more. They might actually have to figure out what the heck's going on here. Instead, it's just the easiest thing in the world to cover polls, make that 90% of your story, and then get some kind of statement or, or soundbite from somebody. And there you're done. Again, that's another example of the intellectual laziness that I think that goes on 
in a lot of industries, again, not singling out the news media, but certainly true in the news media. The other issue is, of course, that, that these news outlets partner with these polling companies. They partner with the pollsters. So it's almost like you're asking them to go throw cold water on their own partners. You know, they, NBC and ABC and the Wall Street Journal and all these other newspapers and, and, and television networks work with polling companies. So they're not really keen on reporting about all the mistakes that the companies that they've paid a lot of money to partner with so that they can have some kind of an anchor for their own election coverage. They're not going to do that. Why would they do that? That's, that's like asking ABC or CBS or all the major networks that rely so much on pharma advertising to go after their number one pharma advertiser, let's say it's Pfizer, and try to find some scandals there. Why would they do that? So they're not going to do that. So it's another reason why we're not getting to the bottom of this. And finally, I think another reason is that be, as long as these polls are more leaning towards the left, in other words, they're making mistakes that accentuate leftward or Democratic Party voters or in outside of this country, liberal voters, then they're very content with the de facto electioneering that reporting on those polls creates. In other words, they can say, well, the left's winning. <laughs> those loser conservatives are losing in, in, in the hopes of discouraging conservative or Republican voters from going to the polls. So they're very happy to do that, too, because of the leftward-leaning uh, tendencies of the news media. So there's a lot of reasons why the, the president and CEO of, of CNBC's call very justified and rightful call for a really long and in-depth and enduring look at why the pollsters are making these mistakes never happened. And so they continue to happen. And I know that there are a number, a couple, you know, here and there, there are some polling companies that make, that do it right. So I don't want to, I don't want to single them out. I want to say, I do want to single them out for their, for their good work, whether it's Rasmussen Reports or the new, not associated with Rasmussen Reports anymore, the new company that Scott Rasmussen works for that got the midterm election results pretty correct. So I want to mention that. But honestly, it's, it's just one of those things where they're making mistakes and they don't care because the news media relies too much on them as a partner and the news media likes this mistake that they're making because they can sort of do de facto electioneering on their behalf. And that's, that's a big part of what's going on here. And it's a shame because it's, it would have been great to find out what's, what's happening that's going wrong because one of the things I think you'll hear, you'll hear this very often, you'll hear this argument very, very often. Well, they didn't get the polls wrong, you'll hear people say. They didn't get the 2016 wrong. They said that Hillary Clinton was going to win by 3, 4, 5 percent, and she did win by 3 percent in the, or whatever, close to that in the popular vote. Ha, ha, ha. Well, of course, the answer to that is, A, that's not how we play this game. The presidential election is an electoral college state by state, and they got a lot of states wrong. So the fact that they got the whole nation right, to me, is irrelevant because that's not the way we play this game. And why they do these national polls based on the popular vote, which doesn't decide our president, and why they lead with that is beyond me. It's, it's not, it's not the, the way that we play this game. It's kind of like asking someone, who do you think is going to get the most hits in a baseball game tonight? Who cares? I want to know who won. Okay, That's how it works. Who do you think is going to win? Who's going to get the most runs? That's how we, we decide baseball. And we decide presidential elections based on who wins electoral college votes. And spoiler alert, one of the reasons why they're having so much trouble with this is because whereas people move around from state to state, their, their vote isn't going to change. Their, the way that they vote won't change the total national popular vote poll. If I move from Virginia to New York and they still have my cell phone number and that's how they poll me, then I'm still the same guy I was in Virginia for the national poll. But I'm not the same guy I was in Virginia for the Virginia poll because I don't live there anymore. 
So it seems counterintuitive. Statewide polling, despite the fact that each state, of course, has fewer people than the nation as a whole, has become much harder to conduct. Much harder to conduct. I only have about a minute left, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, a, a, a misconception that may have gotten through on, on a broadcast I did last week about uh, the Haredi community and welfare and, and the draft. Uh, I wanted to make it very clear that whereas I feel that the policies of not participating in the draft and the high level of Haredi in both Israel and the United States on, on welfare, I do believe that that is a dishonorable result. I certainly don't think that all Haredim, or even most Haredim, are dishonorable. I do, I do think that the path that some of the leaders, some, 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 some of the leaders are promoting is not honorable. And I do think that there are a lot of rabbis, by the way, and a lot of leaders in the Haredi community who recognize this and have been pushing for a different path. And, of course, I want to re- re- repeat the statement I made last week about how uh, there are quite a few positive results going on right now in the Haredi community. They are absolutely participating more in the Israeli economy than they were years ago and participating more in the army more. I just think that that needs to be encouraged even more. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.